This episode of the Ortho Bullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to glenohumeral internal rotation deficit and distal radius fractures, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with glenohumeral internal rotation deficit, and the first question reads, A 22-year-old female collegiate javelin thrower has shoulder pain. She notes that her pain is primarily localized in the posterior aspect of her shoulder, is exacerbated with throwing, and she experiences maximal tenderness in the extreme cocking phase of the throwing cycle. On examination, she reports deep posterior shoulder pain when the arm is abducted 90 degrees and maximally externally rotated to 110 degrees. This reproduces her symptoms precisely. Shoulder radiographs are normal. What is the most likely diagnosis? And the choices are 1. Anterior shoulder instability, 2. Early adhesive capsulitis, 3. Internal impingement, 4. Subacromial impingement, and 5. Full thickness rotator cuff tear. So the patient has internal impingement, making three the correct answer to this question. Internal impingement is commonly seen in overhead throwing athletes. When positioned in the extreme cocking phase of the throwing cycle, the posterior glenoid impacts the articular surface of the infraspinatus and posterior fibers of the supraspinatus tendon. This impact can cause partial thickness rotator cuff tearing and posterosuperior labral lesions. She has no evidence of anterior shoulder instability and her range of motion is excellent, which rules out adhesive capsulitis. Subacromial impingement is identified with anterolateral shoulder pain with internal rotation in the abducted position. A full thickness rotator cuff tear in a 22-year-old individual would require significant trauma and would likely result in pain at rest and with lifting. Moving on to the next question. A professional baseball team has several pitchers with complaints of velocity loss with their pitches and shoulder pain of their dominant shoulders during spring training. Pitch counts are properly monitored. The average glenohumeral internal rotation deficit on the pitching staff is 45 degrees. The best intervention would be, and the choices are 1. Pitchers throwing less fastballs and more change-ups. 2. Evaluate the pitcher's elbows for ulnar collateral ligament acute ruptures. 3. Increasing the weight training for the deltoid and latissimus dorsi muscles. 4. Focus stretches and therapies that address posterior capsular tightness. And 5. Firing the general manager for finding pitchers that, quote, lose their stuff. So glenohumeral internal rotation deficit, or GERD, is a phenomenon that occurs in baseball pitchers and is due to posterior capsular tightness. Treatment should begin with a therapy program addressing the pathologic posterior capsule. So the correct answer to this question is four, focus stretches and therapies that address posterior capsular tightness. But to quickly review, GERD is a phenomenon that is frequently found in high-level overhead throwing athletes, predominantly baseball pitchers. It is defined as the measured difference in internal rotation between the non-dominant arm and the dominant arm. Worsening range of motion deficits are seen with increased repetitions, both over a single season and a career. GERD of greater than 25 degrees is associated with development of shoulder pathologies or pain requiring periods of inactivity. Cessation of overhead throwing activities and initiation of a stretching program to address posterior capsular contractures is largely effective. Burkhart et al. reviewed the conditions associated with high-level overhead throwing athlete shoulders, culminating in a theory of pathologic progression to, quote, dead arm syndrome, which is loss of velocity and effective pitching. Their theory attributes adaptive hyper-external rotation, which occurs during late cocking slash early acceleration phases of pitching, to lead to posterior inferior capsular contracture and GERD. 
subsequent injuries to anterior structures, including slap lesions, would then occur. Moving on to the next question, a 20-year-old college pitcher reports the recent onset of decreased velocity and posterior shoulder pain. He states that it takes him longer to loosen up but denies any mechanical symptoms. When compared to his non-throwing shoulder, glenohumeral examination of his throwing shoulder will most likely reveal which of the following changes. And the choices are 1. Coracoid tenderness, 2. Supraspinatus muscle atrophy, 3. Decreased internal rotation of greater than 25 degrees, 4. Decreased external rotation of greater than 40 degrees, and 5. Decreased abduction of greater than 30 degrees. So in symptomatic throwing shoulders, loss of internal rotation and abduction resulting from postero-inferior capsular contraction exceeds adaptive gains in external rotation. GERD is defined as the loss in degrees of glenohumeral internal rotation of the throwing shoulder compared with the non-throwing shoulder. The pathologic cascade initially begins with decreased velocity and command, followed by posterior stiffness and trouble loosening up. Posterior shoulder pain without mechanical symptom occurs during late cocking and early acceleration phases due to the contracture of the posterior inferior capsule. This results in a posterior superior shift of the glenohumeral contact, resulting in internal impingement on the undersurface of the posterior superior rotator cuff and strain on the posterior superior glenoid labral interface. The slap event is when the posterior superior labrum and biceps anchor fail in tension. After the, quote, slap event, surgery is the likely solution. Prior to this event, however, posterior inferior capsular stretches may result in resolution of symptoms. But the correct answer to this question is 3, decreased internal rotation of greater than 25 degrees. Moving on to the next question, which of the following pathologic entities is most often encountered in association with the clinical diagnosis of internal impingement of the shoulder? And the choices are 1, Bankart lesion, 2, slap tear, 3, anterior capsular contracture, 4, full thickness rotator cuff tear, and 5, humeral avulsion of the glenohumeral ligaments, otherwise known as a Hagel lesion. So a slap tear with posterior extension of the labral detachment is felt to be an important aspect of pathology in internal impingement. Whether this is the cause of the condition or a result of the altered glenohumeral mechanics is still debated. While described as instability after repetitive microtrauma, it is not associated with Bankart or Hagel lesions, as with gross dislocations. The current theories do not associate it with anterior capsular contracture. An articular-sided partial thickness tear of the posterior supraspinatus can be seen, but full thickness tears have not been described. Moving on to the next question, a 19-year-old college pitcher reports posterior shoulder discomfort that started recently with pitching. He is able to throw with normal velocity and control, but his pain in the early acceleration phase of throwing is getting worse. Examination reveals symmetric rotator cuff strength and no increased anterior or posterior translation of either shoulder. He has some discomfort with his shoulder in abduction and external rotation. Supine range of motion of the right shoulder in 90 degrees of abduction reveals external rotation to 100 degrees and internal rotation to 25 degrees. His left shoulder has 95 degrees of external rotation and 45 degrees of internal rotation. He is not playing the next two weeks and requests some exercises that he can do on his own. Which of the following exercises will most likely improve his shoulder symptoms? And the choices are 1. Standard and low rowing exercises. 2. Lying on his side with the shoulder abducted 90 degrees, elbow flex 90 degrees, and pushing his forearm toward the table. 3. 
humeral head depressions while holding a ball against a wall, four, scapular punches in many directions, and five, putting a rolled towel between his shoulder blades while lying supine and having a teammate push posteriorly on the shoulders. So the patient in the question stem has a glenohumeral internal rotation deficit of 20 degrees. Posterior capsular stretching would be beneficial. A sleeper stretch is a common way for patients to stretch the posterior capsule on their own. It involves lying on the side with the shoulder abducted 90 degrees and the elbow flexed 90 degrees and trying to push the forearm towards the table. So the correct answer to this question is 2, lying on his side with the shoulder abducted 90 degrees, elbow flexed 90 degrees, and pushing his forearm toward the table. Closed chain rotator cuff exercises such as humeral head depressions while holding a ball against a wall, pectoralis minor stretching, such as lying on a rolled towel and pushing posteriorly on the shoulders, scapular protraction, such as punches, and scapular retraction, such as row exercises, can all be helpful for the disabled throwing shoulder, but they will not restore the decreased internal rotation. Moving on to the next question, baseball pitchers who have internal impingement will most likely demonstrate what changes in range of motion. And the choices are 1. Increase in internal rotation, decrease in external rotation, 2. Increase in internal rotation, as well as increase in external rotation, 3. Decrease in internal rotation, as well as decrease in external rotation, 4. Decrease in internal rotation and increase in external rotation, and 5. Decrease in forward flexion and increase in external rotation. So pitchers tend to have a decrease in internal rotation and an increase in external rotation. The increase in external rotation is felt to be multifactorial. An increase in humeral retroversion occurs from repeated throwing. This results in increased soft tissue stretching and results in a posterior capsular contracture. So the correct answer to this question is 4, decrease in internal rotation and increase in external rotation. Moving on to the next question. A 31-year-old professional baseball pitcher has increased external rotation and a 30-degree deficit on internal rotation on his throwing shoulder compared to his non-dominant side. Motion analysis of the glenohumeral joint will show what abnormal movement of the humerus in relation to the glenoid during the cocking phase of throwing. And the choices are 1. Postero superior, 2. Postero inferior, 3. Antero inferior, 4. Antero superior, and 5. Directly anterior. So the clinical presentation is consistent for GERD, typically caused by a posterior cuff and capsular contracture. Biomechanical studies have shown that the humerus is translated in a postero superior direction during the cocking phase of throwing in the setting of a posterior capsular contracture. GERD is a common finding in pitchers and other throwing athletes. While it is not necessarily a painful condition, it has been shown to alter the mechanics of the shoulder during throwing and may lead to injury of the superior labrum and articular side of the rotator cuff. Physical exam is significant for increased external rotation and loss of internal rotation compared to the contralateral shoulder. Tests for a slap tear may also be positive. In this condition, radiographs and MRI are often normal. Grossman et al. in a cadaveric study simulating GERD by creating a posterior capsular contracture showed that the humerus moves in a posterior superior direction during the cocking phase of throwing, that is external rotation in 90 degrees of abduction. Lintner et al. report, quote, therapy is directed at posterior capsular stretching to prevent loss of internal rotation and to protect the superior labrum and posterior rotator cuff. They also report that increased external rotation may be attributable to increased humeral retroversion 
while the internal rotation deficit is caused by soft tissue adaptations? So the correct answer to this question, asking about motion analysis of the glenohumeral joint, will show what abnormal movement of the humerus in relation to the glenoid during the cocking phase of throwing. The answer is 1, posterior superior. And moving on to the final question for this topic, a college baseball pitcher has posterior, superior, and anterior pain in his throwing shoulder. On exam, he has a 30-degree loss of internal rotation on the affected side and a positive O'Brien's test. Radiographs and MRI are normal. While all of the following may be helpful, which of the following exercises should be emphasized most in this patient's rehabilitation program? And the choices are 1. Sleeper stretches, cross-body stretches, and periscapular strengthening. 2. Sleeper stretches and subscapularis strengthening. 3. External rotation stretches with cuff strengthening. 4. External rotation stretches and periscapular strengthening. And 5. Altering his arm slot and improving pitching mechanics. So the clinical presentation is consistent with GERD, which is treated with aggressive rehabilitation consisting of posterior capsular stretching and cuff stretching. GERD is now commonly recognized in throwing shoulders. Posterior cuff and capsular tightness can cause decreased internal rotation, which may cause pain and is implicated in slap and articular-sided rotator cuff tears. Radiographs and MRI are usually normal. Kibler et al. review scapular dyskinesis and its relation to shoulder pain. They report treatment of scapular dyskinesis is directed at managing underlying causes and restoring normal scapular muscle activation patterns by kinetic chain-based rehabilitation protocols. Burkhart et al. developed the acronym SICK, S-I-C-K, to refer to the findings one sees in this syndrome, and they are scapular malposition, inferior medial border prominence, coracoid pain and malposition, and dyskinesis of scapular movement. This overuse muscular fatigue syndrome is yet another cause of shoulder pain in the throwing athlete. Moving on to the next topic of distal radius fractures, the first question reads, A 55-year-old woman presents for a routine four-month follow-up for a non-displaced distal radius fracture. Her pain has completely resolved and she has excellent range of motion. However, over the past two weeks, she has noticed difficulty with certain thumb movements and inability to give a thumbs up. The structure most likely disrupted in this patient is supplied by which nerve? And the choices are 1. Anterior interosseous nerve, 2. Posterior interosseous nerve, 3. Recurrent motor branch of the median nerve, 4. Superficial motor branch of the ulnar nerve, and 5. Deep motor branch of the ulnar nerve. So the patient is presenting with a delayed extensor pollicis longus rupture after non-displaced distal radius fracture, and the EPL is supplied by the posterior interosseous nerve making two the correct answer to this question. EPL rupture after non-displaced distal radius fracture is thought to be secondary to tendon damage at the time of injury and or long-term attrition during healing. During the acute traumatic event, typically a fall on an outstretched hand, it is believed that pinching of the tendon between the distal radius and the third metacarpal during hyperextension can lead to EPL disruption. Alternatively, callus formation during the healing process can lead to mechanical irritation of the EPL tendon. Patients with EPL rupture typically present with painless loss of thumb extension. Roth et al. studied the incidence of EPL ruptures in non-displaced and minimally displaced distal radius fractures. They found a 5% rate of EPL rupture, higher than previously reported in the literature, at an average of 6.6 weeks after injury. Moving on to the next question. You are treating a comminuted apex volar angulated distal radius fracture with an external fixator. Tightening the fixator with volar translation of the lunate will, 
and the choices are 1. Help restore appropriate volar tilt. 2. Maintain radial height and inclination. 3. Decrease the risk of non-union. 4. Increase the risk of non-union. And 5. Increase diastasis of the intraarticular fracture fragments. So maintaining volar translation of the lunate after reduction of a comminuted distal radius fracture is recommended to help restore volar tilt. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Help restore appropriate volar tilt. Close reduction and maintenance of alignment of a comminuted distal radius fracture with an external fixator has been shown to produce good healing and good functional outcomes. Traction across the fracture is used to help maintain radial length and alignment and bring fracture fragments together with ligamentotaxis. Volar translation of the lunate is used to help restore volar tilt. Agi et al. presents a review of distal radius fractures treated in an external fixator. He notes that the common position of reduction involves holding the wrist flexed and in ulnar deviation. He points out that this position is not functional and leads to significant stiffness of the fingers. They recommend holding the wrist in a neutral to extended position and allowing early range of motion of the fingers. They note better functional outcomes and even had restoration of volar tilt in 55% of cases despite the extended wrist position. Moving on to the next question, which of the following findings is a contraindication to isolated percutaneous pinning of a distal radius fracture? And the choices are 1, dorsal comminution, 2, volar comminution, 3, radial comminution, 4, intraarticular fracture, and 5, visceral fracture. So intrafocal pinning allows the Kirshner wires to be placed through a site of comminution and then drilled through intact cortex. Generally, Kapanji intrafocal pinning is done for dorsal comminuted extraarticular dorsal bending fractures, but it also may be used to elevate and buttress radial comminution. Simple intraarticular fractures can also be treated with pinning alone. Intrafocal pinning works best as a dorsal or radial buttress to prevent shortening. When there is volar comminution, the fracture is prone to shortening and supplemental external fixation or plating is recommended. So the correct answer to this question, asking which of the following is a contraindication to isolated percutaneous pinning of a distal radius fracture, the answer is 2, volar comminution. Moving on to the next question, during placement of an external fixator for a distal radius fracture, the most commonly injured nerve is a branch of which of the following nerves? And the choices are 1, ulnar, 2, median, 3, superficial radial, 4, lateral antibrachial cutaneous, and 5, medial antibrachial cutaneous. So pin track infections and sensory injuries are among the most common complications of external fixation for distal radius fractures. Of most distal radius, external fixators are placed in the, quote, bare area of the distal radius about four finger breadths above the radial styloid. This corresponds to the area where the dorsal sensory branch of the radial nerve penetrates the fascia dorsal to the brachioradialis tendon to become a subcutaneous structure. Injury to the superficial radial nerve may produce painful dysesthesias and neuromas. So the correct answer to this question is three, superficial radial. Moving on to the next question, a patient reports hyperesthesia over the base of the thenar eminence following volar locked plating of a distal radius fracture. A standard volar approach of Henry was used. What is the most likely cause of the hyperesthesia? And the choices are 1. Complex regional pain syndrome, 2. Wartenberg syndrome, 3. Carpal tunnel syndrome, 4. Palmar cutaneous nerve injury, and 5. C7 radiculopathy. So the palmar cutaneous branch of the median nerve separates from the median nerve approximately 4 to 6 centimeters proximal to the wrist crease and travels between the median nerve and the flexor carpi radialis tendon. 
It supplies the skin of the thenar region. This nerve is at risk for injury with retraction of the digital flexor tendons in plating the distal radius. Wartenberg syndrome is compression of the superficial radial nerve, which innervates the dorsum of the thumb and the first dorsal web space. Carpal tunnel syndrome causes dysesthesias of the thumb, index, and or middle fingers. C7 radiculopathy affects the index and middle fingers. Moving on to the next question. A 22-year-old woman underwent close reduction in percutaneous pinning with casting of a displaced extraarticular distal radius fracture. The surgery was completed with a supraclavicular regional anesthesia. After the block wears off, she reports new-onset dense numbness in the palmar aspect of the thumb, index, and middle fingers, as well as severe pain in the hand. What is the next step in management? And the choices are 1. Bivalve the cast and follow-up in one week. 2. Return to the operating room for open carpal tunnel release. 3. Compartment pressure monitoring of the hand. 4. Emergent nerve conduction velocity studies. And 5. Exploration of the supraclavicular brachial plexus. So the injury represents a somewhat uncommon problem after surgical treatment of distal radius fractures. However, vigilance is required to detect the acute presentation of a carpal tunnel syndrome. In this case, urgent release of the tunnel is recommended, making 2. Return to the operating room for open carpal tunnel release the correct answer to this question. Bivalving the cast alone is indicated when the pain is less severe and only when the numbness is very minimal and more generalized. Compartment syndrome of the hand is almost unheard of in the setting of a distal radius fracture. Rather, it is more commonly associated with a crush injury to the hand. There is no role for emergent nerve conduction velocity studies or brachial plexus exploration. Moving on to the next question. The variability of the DASH or disabilities of the arm, shoulder, and hand questionnaire score reported by patients after non-surgical management of a distal radius fracture has been shown to be affected by which of the following? And the choices are 1. Neuroticism, 2. Pain escaping behavior, 3. Depression, 4. Occupation, and 5. Handedness. So wide variability has been seen by Ring and Associates in the DASH scores for patients treated for carpal tunnel syndrome, unilateral decorvanes tendinitis, trigger finger, unilateral lateral elbow pain, or non-surgical distal radius fractures. The authors hypothesized that the large variation in DASH scores could not be accounted for by physical factors and perhaps could be explained by illness behavior. They found that neuroticism did not correlate with the DASH score but depression and pain anxiety did. So the correct answer to this question is 3, depression. The study found a correlation between depression and all the upper extremity conditions looked at in the study. Neuroticism was found not to correlate with the DASH score, pain escaping behavior is not measurable, and occupation and handedness have not been found to be associated with variations in the DASH score. Moving on to the next question. A 46-year-old woman sustains an extra-articular fracture of the distal radius and undergoes open reduction and internal fixation with a volar plate and screw construct. During post-operative recovery from this injury, what benefit does formal physical therapy have as compared to a patient-guided home exercise program? And the choices are 1. Greater grip strength at 6 months, 2. Less wrist pain at 1 year, 3. Better hand dexterity at 1 year, 4. No difference in functional outcomes, and five, quicker return to work. So there are no significant benefits demonstrated with formal physical therapy following distal radius fracture, or RIF, compared to a patient-guided home exercise program. So the correct answer to this question is four, no difference in functional outcomes. The reference by Wakefield and McQueen is a randomized controlled trial of 96 patients comparing formal hand physiotherapy to a home exercise regimen. 
There was no difference in grip strength, pronation slash supination, radial slash ulnar deviation, or hand function. The authors concluded that there were no significant benefits to formal physiotherapy. The study by Sauer et al. is a level one study evaluating formal therapy and patient-guided exercise programs for patients who underwent ORIF of a distal radius fracture with a volar plate and screw construct. The study showed a significant decrease in wrist range of motion and grip strength with formal therapy. There were no differences in arm-specific disability, that is the DASH score, at any time point. Moving on to the next question. A 51-year-old female presents with an acute inability to extend her thumb four months after she was treated with cast immobilization for a minimally displaced distal radius fracture. What is the most appropriate treatment at this time? And the choices are 1. Occupational therapy for strengthening. 2. Extensor carpi radialis longus transfer to the extensor pollicis longus. 3. Extensor pollicis brevis transfer to the extensor pollicis longus. 4. Extensor indices proprius transfer to the extensor pollicis longus and five, primary repair of extensor pollicis longus. So a rare complication of non-displaced or minimally displaced fractures of the distal radius treated with a cast is a delayed rupture of the extensor pollicis longus tendon. The EPL is the primary extensor of the interphalangeal joint of the thumb and also assists with metacarpophalangeal extension. Extensor indices proprius transfer to the EPL is the most widely used and reported treatment for this condition. Magnussen et al. reviewed results of EIP transfer following ruptures of the EPL with 19 out of 21 good results. None of the cases had any loss of independent index finger extension, although index extensor strength reduced to half of that of the contralateral side. Moving on to the next question. A 58-year-old man underwent distal radius ORIF with a volar locking plate yesterday. Preoperatively, he reported some mild sensory disturbances in the volar thumb and index finger, but had two-point discrimination of 6 millimeters in each finger. Now he complains of worsening hand pain and sensory disturbances in his volar thumb and index finger. Two-point discrimination is now greater than 10 millimeters in these fingers. Radiographs show a well-fixed fracture in good alignment. What is the most appropriate treatment at this time? And the choices are 1. Strict elevation, 2. Removal of hardware, 3. Immediate carpal tunnel release, 4. Carpal tunnel release if no resolution at 6 to 12 weeks, and 5. Trial of night splinting. A 70-year-old woman with known osteoporosis sustains a distal radius fracture of her dominant arm with some metaphyseal comminution. Adequate maintenance of reduction by non-operative treatment is unsuccessful. Which plating option provides the most appropriate treatment of this fracture? And the choices are 1. Semitubular, 2. Dynamic compression, 3. Limited contact dynamic compression, 4. Periarticular locked, and 5. Pelvic reconstruction. So Egal et al. studied locked and conventional plates. They concluded that locked plates may be increasingly indicated for indirect fracture reduction, diaphyseal slash metaphyseal fractures in osteoporotic bone, bridging severely comminuted fractures, and the plating of fractures where anatomical constraints prevent plating on the tension side of the bone. Conventional plates remain the fixation method of choice for periarticular fractures that demand perfect anatomical reduction and certain types of non-unions that require increased stability for union. So, so the correct answer to this question is four periarticular locked plates. Moving on to the next question. A 20-year-old concert pianist sustained a diaphyseal radius fracture and underwent open reduction in internal fixation three years ago. She is thin and reports that the plate is irritating her after playing the piano for an hour or more. 
She undergoes elective plate removal of the 3.5mm plate, and two weeks later, she refractures the radius. Which of the following statements is most accurate? And the choices are 1. Diaphyseal plate removals are at higher risk of refracture. 2. Postoperative splinting increases the chance of refracture. 3. The patient would not have sustained a refracture if the plate was a 4.5mm plate. 4. The risk of fracture increased because the plate was removed within 5 years. And 5. Waiting 5 years to remove the hardware would have decreased the risk of refracture. So the risk of refracture after hardware removal is multifactorial. Multiple variables have been looked at, such as protective splinting for 6 weeks after hardware removal, waiting 12 months or more prior to hardware removal, and the location of the fracture. The one variable that seems to correlate the most with the risk of refracture is a diaphyseal location of the initial fracture. Large fragment plates like 4.5mm plates when removed are at a higher risk for refracture in the forearm. And moving on to the final question for this topic, a 14-year-old boy sustained a 100% displaced distal radius Salter-Harris type 2 fracture. Neurologic examination demonstrates normal motor examination and two-point discrimination. He undergoes fracture reduction to the anatomic position with the application of a long arm cast. Close reduction, he reports increasing hand and wrist pain with a decrease of two-point discrimination to 10 millimeters over the index and middle fingers over the next several hours after surgery. The cast is bivalved and the padding released, relieving all external pressure over the arm. Reevaluation reveals increasing sensory deficit over the affected area. What is the next most appropriate management intervention? And the choices are 1. Cast removal and measurement of carpal canal pressure. 2. Immediate carpal tunnel release and pinning of the fracture. 3. Continued observation. 4. Surgical reduction and pinning of the fracture. And 5. Electromyography slash nerve conduction velocity studies. So this question is similar to one that we previously did. And this patient has an evolving acute carpal tunnel syndrome. Initial management for this injury is to relieve all external pressure that may elevate the neural compression. Surgical decompression of the median nerve at the carpal tunnel is the optimal intervention. Further non-surgical interventions such as cast removal or further bivalving are insufficient to alleviate the neural compression. That's all for this review session about glenohumeral internal rotation deficit and distal radius fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.